office and made it difficult to get any work done. He had been drinking more than usual, too, which was always a bad sign. Doug had never questioned Ray's guilt, but his inability to stave off death ate at him. He was constantly second-guessing decisions he'd made, especially the decision to convince Ray to plead guilty. It wasn't as if his strategy was unreasonable. He'd consulted several lawyers who handled death cases, and most had agreed with his plan— the older, experienced attorneys had convinced him that winning a death case meant keeping your client alive. The evidence against Ray was incredibly strong, and Doug had gambled that Ray's acceptance of guilt and his spotless record would sway the jury in favor of life in the sentencing phase of the trial. He had been horribly, horribly wrong. Doug worked on the day of the execution, but he didn't accomplish much. Before leaving for the prison, he ate a light dinner, put on his best suit, a clean white shirt, and his nicest tie, and even shined his shoes. He wanted a drink badly, but he limited himself to one glass of scotch. Doug was going to be sober at the execution. He figured he owed Ray that. At 9.30 p.m., Doug parked in a lot several miles from the prison. The location of the lot had been shrouded in secrecy to keep all but a select group of reporters from finding the witnesses who were to be shuttled to the penitentiary. Ray and his mother were the last of a small family, so thankfully there were no relatives waiting. Doug noticed a group of government officials standing off to one side. Among them was Amaya Lathrop, the assistant attorney general who had convinced the appellate courts to affirm the sentence of death, and Martin Poe, a career prosecutor in the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office, who had obtained the death sentence at trial. Jake Teeney, the deputy DA who'd second-chaired the case, had moved back east two years ago. Lathrop had always seen the case as a debate about issues of constitutional law far removed from the gore through which Doug and the prosecutors had waited in the courtroom, so Doug wasn't surprised that the A.G. nodded his way, while Poe studiously avoided looking at him. Marge Cross drove up moments after Doug parked. She was a short, chunky brunette with the courtroom demeanor of a pit bull who had been unmarried and fresh from a clerkship at the Oregon Supreme Court when she second-chaired Raymond's case. Marge had been dead set against the guilty plea, but she'd never criticized Doug after the verdict of death and had second-chaired two other cases with him after Hayes. The attorneys had talked about driving to the prison together, but Marge's two-year-old daughter had come down with the flu, and she'd had to stay with her until her husband finished teaching a class at Portland Community College. "'I see Poe has come to gloat,' she said bitterly. "'I don't think he's gloating, Marge. He's not that low.' Marge shrugged. You're entitled to your opinion, but he and Teeny were snickering all through the trial, and I heard they celebrated with some of the other Neanderthals from the office after the sentencing hearing. Doug spotted Steve Hooper, the lead detective on Ray's case, talking to a state trooper near the van that would take them to the prison. The detective was a linebacker in street clothes with wide bunched shoulders, a thick neck, and the hint of a gut. His head was covered with a thatch of jet black hair and a shaggy mustache drooped over his upper lip. The only thing small about the detective were his close-set eyes and his pug nose, which looked out of place on such a broad face. Hooper was an aggressive cop who believed that he was never wrong. Doug was certain that he had lied about certain incriminating statements that Ray was supposed to have made before the detective switched on his tape recorder in the interrogation room. Ray swore he never made the statements, but there was no way to prove that Hooper had falsified his report. Listen up, people shouted Thad Spencer, the community relations representative for the Department of Corrections. We'll be heading out in a minute. Just a reminder, there will be medical people standing by in the viewing room in case any of you need help, and there's no talking permitted after you enter the viewing room. Any questions? 
Spencer fielded a few from the reporters, but the attorneys were quiet and somber. After the last question, Spencer herded the witnesses onto a van. They took back streets all the way to the penitentiary. Along the route, they passed police cars at several locations. They were there to deal with the protesters who were chanting outside the prison. Doug noticed that the police officers stopped talking and stared into the van as they drove by. Inside the prison, Doug went through a metal detector and had his hand stamped. Then everyone waited in a comfortable office where coffee and fruit had been provided. Doug didn't touch either. Adding to the general unease was the chanting of the demonstrators on State Street that was loud enough to be heard inside the office. At 11.30, Thad Spencer led the witnesses to the death chamber at the rear of the prison. Each time they were moved to a new location, Doug's tension level skyrocketed, and he regretted his decision to come to the prison sober. By the time the witnesses were led into the death chamber, it was a little after...